Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today we tell the story of a young man who was revered by poets such as Wordsworth, Shelley and Coleridge and a romanticised painting depicting his deathbed remains an enduring image of doomed artistic talent. Today's tale takes us back to 1770, when the Boston Massacre happened on March the 5th. Eleven American men were shot and five fatally by British troops. In an event that helped start the American Revolutionary War five years later. On May the 7th, 14-year-old Marie Antoinette arrives at the French court, and a few days later she marries Louis Auguste, who later becomes King Louis XVI of France. And on May the 20th, a stampede at the celebration of the newly wedded Marie Antoinette and Louis Auguste in Paris kills more than a 100 people. On the 10th of June, the first voyage of James Cook, Captain Cook, discovers the Great Barrier Reef when HMS Endeavour runs aground on it. But our story starts in Bristol, very close to the very famous St Mary Redcliffe Church. Nicknamed Bristol's Shakespeare, Thomas Chatterton was a boy poet who died at just 17 years old, having already penned an incredible array of work from poems and eulogies to political letters as satires. William Wordsworth's listing in Resolution and Independence of poets that influenced him the most describes Chatterton as the marvellous boy, the sleepless soul that perished in his pride. Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote a monody on Chatterton. Robert Southey edited poems and John Keats dedicated Endymion in 1817 to him. And Percy Shelley ranks Chatterton with Sir Philip Sidney as inheritors of unfulfilled renown. Thomas Chatterton was born in Bristol on November the 20th, 1752, in the schoolmaster's house of Pile Street School. His father, a writing master at the school, died before his birth. The family moved away to a relations house in Redcliffe Hill after Chatterton's christening in 1753. Thomas Chatterton's father, 
also called Thomas, was of an eccentric disposition, but with strong musical and antiquarian interests. The elder Thomas Chatterton's ancestors had been sextons of the Church of St Mary in the parish of Redcliffe for generations. This impressive church was famously described by Queen Elizabeth I as one of the most famous, fairest and goodliest parish churches in England. Chatterton grew up in a household of women. His mother, his sister and his father's mother. And the whole system was maintained by his mother's work as a needlewoman. He briefly attended Pyle Street School but was turned away as his teacher thought he was too dull to keep up with lessons. A short time later he would become a precocious student at Colston's Bluecoat School which he started attending at the age of eight. Pyle Street School was demolished when the street was widened to become Redcliffe Way, but the building's facade was attached to the former schoolmaster's house that stood behind it. Today, you can see a commemorative plaque here, as well as step inside for a taste of fresh local coffee and homemade food and cakes at the aptly named Chatterton's Cafe. Word of the Week Brace yourselves guys because today's word is Apticock which was used around the 1770s in the southwest and means a quick-witted or intelligent young man During Thomas Chatterton's formative years, he developed a fascination with the Church of St Mary Redcliffe, where his uncle was a sexton. It was, after all, a place where various literary materials could be accessed, including Bibles, which Chatterton read thoroughly, as well as historical artefacts. As a boy, he was reportedly fascinated by the historic inscriptions and designs on tombs, furniture and the wider architecture of the church. After a few years of almost obsessive reading, he aspired to take his place amongst the great writers. In the monument room of the church, Chatterton's father discovered a range of medieval parchments hidden in some oak chests. It was these that became the inspiration for his medieval-styled mysteries and the forged identity of Thomas Rowley he would go on to create. The monument's room from where Chatterton's father had been allowed to take old papers to research his family history is now referred to as the Chatterton Room. In 1767, Chatterton became an apprentice of a Bristol attorney, John Lambert, and began to forge medieval narratives of local events, beginning with an account of the opening of Bristol Bridge, inserted in Felix Farley's Bristol Journal in 1768. At the time, he was only 16. His accounts had a wonderful air of reality about them and caused a sensation in antiquarian circles with scholars of the day seeking out who Dunhelmus Bristoliusis was. Chatterton now became an important person. The boy at the lawyer's desk was visited by the elite of the city who were anxious to know how he came by the treasure. Soon afterwards he wrote poems he attributed to Thomas Rowley a 15th century monk said to be the friend and confessor of the 15th century Bristol merchant 
Keninge. The reality was that it was all made up, and Chatterton produced a lot of the work, not only poems, but maps, letters, and even fake business accounts in Rowley's name. His imitations of medieval writings first produces a history of every ecclesiastical building in Bristol, and with the skillful application of ochre, charcoal dust and black lead powder, they were speedily transformed into an apparently antique parchment. In 1779, Chatterton, aged 16, approached one of the most significant and well-known supporters of the Gothic works, Horace Walpole, who not only built his own Gothic villa, Strawberry Hill in Twickenham, but he also penned a Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto, which was published on Christmas Eve in 1764. Horace Walpole, by the way, was an English writer, art historian, man of letters, antiquarian and Whig politician. Over the course of a number of letters, Thomas Chatterton sought Walpole's help in publishing the fragments of his Rowlian poetry and the select work of others from the 15th century, including anecdotes of painting. Walpole, however wasn't convinced by the manuscript's authenticity. He refused to offer the support that Chatterton was after, and Chatterton's Rowley corpus wasn't published until 1777, seven years after his death. Chatterton also sent samples of his work to Walter Scott, a Scottish historical novelist, poet, playwright and historian, but he replied, writing is a good stick but a bad crutch. Chatterton's poetic forgeries were hardly credible as 15th century relics, even though a number of people went to great lengths to attempt to prove their authenticity. The works follow the polished formula of 18th century poetry, but the words were replaced by older examples, and there is a widespread revision of spelling, including doubling up of letters, substituting letters, and also sprinkling the letter E liberally through the words. Chatterton went into a rage at his rejection, blaming the fact that he told Walpole that he was from a poor background. The mad genius, as his Bristol friends called him, threatened suicide and even drew up a reckless will, which was found in his desk at work by his employer. In this will, he states that he will do the deed the next day, being Easter Sunday, the 5th of April, 1770. And as you can imagine, this frightened his employer, the attorney John Lambert, so much that his apprenticeship was immediately cancelled. At this news, Chatterton wrote to a friend. No, it is my pride, my damn naive and conquerable pride, that plunges me into distraction. You must know that 1920ths of my composition is pride. I must either live a slave, a servant, have no will of my own, no sentiments of my own, which I may freely declare as such, or die. Perplexing alternative, but it distracts me to think of it. Book of the Week Now, with Christmas thundering towards us on the horizon, a book is an ideal present to give someone. And this week's Book of the Week is The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. Set in a small English village called Chawton, just after the Second World War, it's about 
the final home of Jane Austen, one of England's finest novelists. Now, there's a few distant relatives of her and her diminishing estate, so what they decide to do is to preserve everything Jane Austen. It tells the story of the individual's struggles and loss, as well as their love for all things Jane Austen and how they come together to create the Jane Austen Society. After his apprenticeship was so brutally ended, Chatterton left Bristol to pursue his writing career in London on the 26th of April, 1770. He wrote to a friend, A literary life, but if I fell, I will turn Methodist preacher. A new sect may easily be devised, but if that too shall fail me, my last and final resource is a pistol. His new life in London started really well. He almost became the tutor to the young Duke of Northumberland, but was let down by his lack of a foreign language. He becomes known to all the geniuses at the Chapter Coffee House, the editors of the Political Register, the Freeholders Magazine, the London Museum, and the Middlesex Journal all accepted his writings and had sent him very flattering letters in return. It was said that his most remarkable feature was his eyes, which, although grey, were uncommonly piercing when he was excited and debating. Otherwise, they would sparkle with an inner fire. A music seller in the city meets him in the pit of Drury Lane Theatre and asks him to write songs. He starts becoming intoxicated with his newfound fame and affects airs and graces when writing to his friends back in Bristol. He sent his mother a French snuffbox, his sister two fans and some herb tobacco for his grandmother. But this was all in pretense. He was at this time really all but starving. In a letter to his mother, though, he writes, The poverty of authors is a common observation but not always a true one. No author can be poor who understands the arts of booksellers. Without this necessary knowledge, the greatest genius may starve, and with it, this knowledge I have pretty well dipped into. For all his words, he was living off stale bread because it was cheap and more economical. One loaf would last him a week. In in a recent survey, it was found out that most people knew that Albert Einstein was a genius, but very few people knew that his brother Frank created a monster. Chatterton was only paid ten shillings and sixpence for writing sixteen songs, barely enough to pay for the midnight oil. His dreams were fading and he was facing poverty, living off the paltry proceeds of political pamphlets, sermons and musical comedies. His publishers owed him much-needed money and he had to move from a friend's in Shoreditch to his final lodgings in the house of Mrs Angel, a sack-maker. Still, he toiled away on his work. 
the strings were swept. Twas sad to hear, sweet music floating there. For every note called forth a tear of anguish and despair. In one of his last-ditch attempts to secure his future, Chatterton asked the Bristol historian, Barrett, to give him a certificate so that he could go to Africa as a surgeon's mate. Barrett refused. On paying his last rent, which he did regularly, his landlady, Mrs Angel, wanted to give it back to him, knowing how much he needed it, but his pride meant that he declined the offer. She later told a neighbour. On the 24th of August... I knew he hadn't eaten anything for two or three days and begged he would take some dinner with me, but he was offended at my expressions, which seemed to hint he was in want, and he assured me that he was not hungry. In fact, as it turns out, he was livid that Mrs Angel asked him to have dinner with her. And that night, he bought some arsenic and drank it with water. The next day, the 24th of August, 1970, Thomas Chatterton's door was broken down. And in a dismal garret of number 39 Brook Street, Holborn, London, he was discovered dead. His floor was strewn with little scraps of paper. In what was once thought to be a suicide after his failure to find success and wealth, but is now considered an accidental overdose. As evidence has recently been found that the arsenic which killed Chatterton might actually have been purchased by the poet in a bid to cure a sexually transmitted disease. As the poet was also taking opium, he may thus have either created a lethal cocktail or simply misjudged the dosage. Either way, his death at such a tragically young age was part of what cemented his legacy as a romantic figure. An inquest was held on Thomas Chatterton's carelessly interred body. He was buried without prayer or tears, in a dismal burying ground of Shoe Lane Workhouse, now the site of Goldman Sachs, near Fleet Street. Dead at 17, Chatterton was at first considered a rogue and scoundrel for having made these forgeries, but soon his reputation became that of a child genius. How could, for example, a 16-year-old child create such fantastic historical impostures? Today, he is remembered as a genius. Some believe that Chatterton's body was sent by cart to his mother in Bristol and buried on the right-hand side of the middle lime-tree-paved walk of Redcliffe Churchyard, within the shadow of the old north porch, where he had spent so many happy hours as a child. This second interment was apparently all done secretly by Thomas's uncle, Richard Phillips. This year marks the 250th anniversary of Thomas Chatterton's death and Bristol's held a series of projects marking this occasion. The celebration included the commissioning of new poems based on the deathbed painting of Chatterton by Henry Wallace which hangs in the Tate Britain, London. The highly anticipated Bristol A Poetic City Poetry Anthology developed over the course of lockdown and set to be published imminently contains exciting new work and involved 12 commissioned poets, six from Bristol and six from further afield, responding to the iconic Henry Wallace painting, The Death of Chatterton. Theresa Lola, the Young People's Laureate for London, has composed one of the poems, focusing on the window behind Chatterton's deathbed and wondering why it is open. A comic book relating to Thomas Chatterton's life is being produced 
and the competition was held to design a new monument for him in Bristol. The Chatterton comic was beautifully illustrated by Wilhelm Hampson. Andrew Kelly, director of the Bristol Cultural Development Partnership, said one of the main aims of the anniversary celebrations called A Poetic City was simply to make sure Bristolians knew about him. While there is a statue of Chatterton in Millennium Square in Bristol, only the fragments of a monument to him that used to stand at St Mary Redcliffe Church survive in a city museum. If you would like to find out more about this festival, go to www.ideasfestival.co.uk and type in Chatterton into the search box. Ted Bundy abducted and murdered my dad's high school friend, Debbie Kent, in 1974. At least, Bundy admitted to killing her just before his execution, but police were never able to locate her body. That's the topic of just one episode of Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, historical mysteries, and true unsolved cases are all things to expect when you tune in to our show. I'm Jaden McKell, and I'm the host of Straight Up Enigmas. Our bite-sized, bi-weekly episodes focus on the world's strangest mysteries. Sacred and sonic geometry, the murder of Karen Silkwood, Turkmenistan's door to hell, the curse of the omen, and much more. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find podcasts. Back in the day facts. Back in 1872, on the 5th of December, the brig Mary Celeste, which later popularly became known as the Marie Celeste, carrying a cargo of alcohol, was found mysteriously abandoned off the Azores in the Atlantic Ocean. On the 6th of December, in 1865, the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution abolishing slavery was ratified. Also on the 6th, but in 1917, during World War I, the French ship Mont Blanc, packed with ammunition, acid and explosive TNT, and the Belgian release ship Emo, collided off Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. The Mont Blanc exploded, killing more than 2,000 people, injuring another 9,000, and destroying 325 acres of the city. On the 7th of December in 1941, the Japanese launched an attack on the US naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and other military installations nearby, an event that brought the USA into World War II. Four battleships and 42 aircraft were destroyed. Many others were badly damaged, and more than 2,400 members of the US armed forces lost their lives. On the 8th of December, 1864, Clifton Suspension Bridge was officially opened as a monument to its designer, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who had died five years earlier. Also on the 8th of December, but in 1980, English songwriter, vocalist and rhythm guitarist for the Beatles, John Lennon, was shot outside his New York apartment. And on the 10th of December, 1967, US soul singer Otis Redding passed away. 
And now I fear the end of the show is nigh, but I'd like to take a moment to thank Henry Arnold for Bradley Stoke Radio and Samantha Vernon from St Stephen's Drama Group for their voice talents in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.